Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Thank you for being here to worship with us at the Vista. We are really glad you've chosen to be here today. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. We're continuing our series, Reading Romans Backwards, where we started at the end of the book to really see uh, the audience and to see who Paul is writing to. And and then we're going to kind of work our way backwards into a lot of the theological talk And uh, we think that, again, it's just a different way to look at Romans, and and hopefully it'll just make a little more sense uh, as we we look at it in kind of a unique unique way. Before we get into our text, um, I wanted to specifically say something to this service. Um, As more people begin to come back and um, there's there's less and less worry about COVID and things, what we've noticed is that the, the middle service, this has always been the case, the 1030 service, uh, it just fills up faster than all the other services. Um, and so actually today, we look, it looks from up here, looks like uh, we're down a little bit, but we've been having consistently over 750 people in this service. And so what happens is people walk in, even if they're just a few minutes late and everyone's standing and singing, and it just looks like it is completely packed, right? It looks like we've literally had people walk in and go, yeah, there's no room here, and then just turn around and walk back out. And so we, we obviously don't want that. So one thing that, that uh, I wanted to just kind of throw this out there, uh, we have um, a little bit of room. The, the nine is, there's a little bit of room in the nine o'clock, and then there's plenty of room in our 1145 service. And so here's what I would say. One thing we've noticed through different surveys and, and, and over the years is that uh, most new, t- like people that are new to church, first-time guests, first-time visitors, unchurched people that are finally going to maybe try a church out, uh, this middle hour is, is the one that most of them choose to come to. And we've seen that when seats are freed up, uh, God, God fills those seats with someone new. They get to come, they get to worship, they get to hear the gospel. And so here's what uh, our pastors and our elders have talked through this and what we would like to urge you to do um, is if you can make it work, if you're a regular uh, attender or a member here, um, if you can make it work in your Sunday morning schedule to attend either the 9 or the 1145, you will free up some space uh, to allow some new people uh, to come to church. And again, I walked in this morning and went, looks like, looks like we got some room all across the front, you know, and um, it's one of those weeks where that just sometimes happens. But I'm telling you, normally this 1030 hour is the most full. So throwing that out there, we're not going to have, you know, bouncers at the doors, checking IDs or nothing like that. But if you can make that work in your Sunday morning schedule, uh, again, freeing up more space in here. This is the service that most first-time guests tend to come to, and we want to try to make, uh, make this service as appealing to them as possible. All right, there's my public service announcement for the morning. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series, Reading Romans Backwards, as I mentioned. So last week, our student pastor preached, and you know, when the student pastor preaches, all the rules just kind of go out the window, right? Like, he just changed the sermon title, apparently. He goes completely out of order, I got to put everything back together today. I'm just kidding. Chris, Chris did a fantastic job last week. In all honesty, uh, when I realized it was okay, I'm, it's my turn to preach on the, on the preaching schedule, I went to Chris and I knew that I was going to be out. And I said, hey man, here's the deal. Uh, would you like an opportunity? Would you like to preach? And of course, Chris was excited to do so. Um, and I said, so we're at Romans 13. And you can either preach Romans 13, or if you'd rather, you know, you can, you can do Romans 12, and then I can do Romans 13 when I get back. And pretty quickly, Chris was like, yeah, I'll do Romans 12, okay? So you'll see why here in a little bit. Romans 13 
it, it can be a bit of a tricky passage, okay? It can, it can be somewhat controversial, right? It's, it's talking about, you know, Christians' uh, response to or posture towards the state, the governing authorities. And, and let's be honest, like I'm sure we're all on the same page regarding government, right? I'm sure we all voted the same way and there's not gonna be any reason to get upset, right? I mean, that's just the way it, no. Truth is, as always, here's my promise to you. When I preach a text like this, my goal is to equally offend everybody in the room the same, right? I am an equal opportunity offender, and that's my goal today, to offend all of you, right? Uh, no, Romans 13 is a really important text, but it can be a little bit tricky. And so uh, we want to look at this text together and see uh, what God has to, has to say to us. And in all seriousness, Chris and Emma and the, and the student ministry team, they do just a fantastic job. I don't know if you've kind of peeked your head in there, but, or even walk through the building on a Wednesday, you'll see hundreds of students, um, man, running around, and, and they just do a great job of, of, of teaching and discipling those, those students. Um, in addition, that's all the stuff you see. Um, I can tell you that student ministry is very, very tough. Um, the conversations behind, behind the scenes that they have uh, with, with students, dealing with very difficult subjects, the conversations they have with parents from time to time, I mean, it's a difficult thing. So if you see Chris, uh, Emma, our other student ministry volunteers, um, man, let them know just how much you appreciate them because they do have a difficult job and they're doing a fantastic job with our students, all right? Um, so here we go, Romans 13. We're gonna dive in and it's gonna be uh, fun and a really good Sunday, right? Here's what it says, beginning in verse one. Let every person, so, so who? There you go. Because what happens is when you read a text like this, there's always someone that's like, well, that don't apply to me, <laughs> right? There's always one person that's like that. No, that's not, no. Every person, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Down in verse eight then. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what we're going to talk about today is, again, a, a Christian's, a believer's um, attitude, posture towards governing authorities. This whole idea of church and state and what that is supposed to look like. Again, and and this can be somewhat a controversial text. Um, we'll talk about why that is a little bit later. Um, but here's what I would say just as we get started. This text is not sort of an end-all, be-all 
answering all questions regarding our response to anything and everything the government might ask of us, okay? Some people want to sort of make it that, but that's not, that's not the, the, the intent of the text. Um, so I would remind you, Paul didn't sit down and write this with some Western version of American democracy in mind, right? He wasn't thinking like, oh, hundreds of years from now, there's going to be this country called America, and they're going to vote. And like, this is not, uh, we all tend to see scripture through the lenses in which we live in our own experience. But I would just remind you that to look at scripture and to rightly understand it and even apply it, we first and foremost have to understand the audience to which he was writing and what's going on with them and see the bigger picture. And, And then from that, we can sort of pull some things and apply to us here and now. And so I would remind you again, there is nothing in here. There is nothing in the text about, you know, COVID protocols, right? Mask mandates or vaccines. I've literally heard people use this text to try to talk to those issues. Paul had none of that stuff in mind when he wrote Romans 13, okay? So that is not where we're heading this morning. And if you were hoping that I was going to go there, I am really sorry to disappoint you in the introduction of my sermon, right? Uh, but that's, not, that's not where we're going. My goal today is this. I want to try to answer four sort of overarching questions in regards to a believer's proper attitude and response towards government, okay? That's, that's my goal. And I'll frame the sermon this way. I want to answer the what, the why, the when, and the how, okay? What, why, when, and how. Um, and so here's question number one. What should our posture be towards governing authorities, okay? That's kind of the big idea of what Paul is writing. What should our posture be as Christians toward governing authorities? And essentially, again, this is really the big idea of the text. And and again, context is important. Paul is trying to help believers in the church not pursue a political sort of zealotry or extremism that would ultimately lead to rebellion and violence against the government, okay? So again, Austin has done a really great job of setting this up by pointing out that Paul is writing this letter to some house churches in Rome. In those house churches are different people. And Paul's going to call them the weak and the strong. If you remember, the strong, who he calls the strong, those are the, the Gentile Christians, okay? There's more Gentile Christians now that are coming to Christ, and they are the, they are the majority in the, in the early church now in Rome. And so they are at a, a little bit stronger position. Uh, Whereas who he calls the weak are some Jewish Christians that were previously expelled from the Roman Empire, and now they've been allowed to come back. And what they find is when they come back, they don't, their voice doesn't carry the same weight anymore. They're kind of in the minority. Um, And and so they, they come back and they're, let's be honest, they don't like the government. They're angry at the government. They're mad at the government. They see the government as the enemy. Government expelled them. Government hasn't treated them fairly. And so in every way, there would have been a temptation for these, those that Paul calls the weak, there would have been this temptation to pursue a political zealotry. They would have been tempted to sort of join up with these groups that would have been, you know, looking to combat Rome, overthrow the government. Several groups did that. They took up arms and tried to go, go you know, uh, riots and all these other things. And so Paul's writing to this group in the church, and he's saying, like, this is not the avenue that you should pursue. But rather, he says this, like, you should seek to respect authority. You should seek as best you can to obey the laws of the land. This includes paying taxes. Again, some of them would have been like, 
I'm not paying taxes. They just, they expelled me. I don't, I'm not paying them taxes. I don't know how that money is used. I'm not, they would have been a temptation for some of them to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. I would remind you, Jesus paid his taxes. Jesus encouraged other people, his followers, to pay their taxes. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so Paul simply, uh, this, again, the big idea here is he's writing to these house churches, and some of them would have been prone to go, political extremism, man, political uh, zealotry, that's the avenue that we need to gather all the Christians and, and be against Rome and against the governing authorities. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. That would be a very, very bad idea. Don't, don't do that. Live at peace. Man, seek to be peacemakers. Live under the laws of the land. Respect and honor the authority. And as I read this text, man, I'm, I, you know, I just sometimes I think, man, I'm so glad that we are beyond this. Like that people would disagree with the government and the system and they would resort to violence. And I'm so glad we've evolved as a society to where that is no longer, you know, that's no longer our, our issue. Am I right? I'm so glad we've evolved. That's, that's no longer a thing, a thing for us. Or maybe not, right? Maybe not. No, this is still a reality today. Like people are so prone to, man, resort to, to violence, resort to all kinds of, of, of destruction when, when they feel like, man, they are not getting their way uh, politically, a different group is in charge. Again, let's just be honest. There's something about the human heart and the human condition where sometimes political ideology rules and reigns in our heart to the detriment of the way Christ called us to live, right? And this is Paul's big idea in the text, that this is not the way Christians should respond. And so this leads us to the next question. The next question is this, why, why should we take such an approach? Why take such an approach? I think there's a couple reasons. One is a very practical reason, right? Paul is literally going, hey guys, um, political like zealotry, resorting to violence and vengeance because of your political ideology in Rome, that's just going to go very badly for you, right? Like there were groups that did that and the Roman government just brutally smashed them. People were crucified, held as examples. They were cast out. I mean, Paul's literally, literally like, he's got the bigger mission and the bigger purpose in mind. God has called him to preach Jesus, to th this movement that's getting started. The church is beginning to grow and beginning to spread, and, and Paul's planting churches, and he wants to see the movement uh, grow, and he knows that if a bunch of Christians all of a sudden decide that they're going to be labeled as the ones that are causing violence and the ones that are always against the government, that will be put to a stop very, very quickly. And so on a practical level, Paul's going, guys, to, to, to pursue this political thing over here will be a detriment to our overall mission and purpose that God gives us. If we, if we pursue this and this, this political ideology sort of rules and reigns in our hearts, then we are forgetting about the mission and purpose God gave us. And so on a practical level, Paul's going, that's not a good idea. On a more philosophical or theological level, Paul is trying to remind the church of the way of Christ. Paul's trying to remind the church of the way of Christ. I mentioned earlier that what tends to happen is sometimes we'll come to a text and we'll sort of take verses one through seven as if it is like an independent text. We'll sort of pull it out and treat it like it's some kind of treaty unto itself. Don't forget that chapters 
and, and verses were not added to the text until many, many, many years later, right? Chapters uh, were added in like the 1200s and then verses later in like the 1500s. And so basically when this was written, it was a, a letter. Like you and I would sit down and write a letter. It was a manuscript, right? So it all kind of goes together. And so when you read scripture to rightly interpret it, you need to look at what's before it and what's behind it. So let me just remind you really quickly of some things that are right before it and right after it, right? In the context, right? Chris talked to us last week about chapter 12. I'll just really quickly, a few, a few verses in chapter 12. Verse nine, Paul writes, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Down in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Then we read over in 13, after after the part about the government, he says in verse eight, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's what I want you to see. This little excerpt in one through seven about the church's posture towards the state is bracketed on either side by Paul discussing other like Christian virtues, specifically love and peace. That Christians are to love their neighbor and love their enemies and seek to be peacemakers in a broken and fallen world. And so what happens is when we simply go and look at one through seven and pull it out of that context, it can sound like we're, you know, yeah, you know, get them and government and our government's right and your government's wrong and the guy I voted for is right and the guy you voted for is an idiot. And, you know, we can kind of get this idea that like we just, we, we take it out of the context in which it was written. But the bigger point that Paul's making is no, Christians, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, Christians are to be people who love one another and they love their neighbors and they love their enemies and they, they work to live peaceably and do something Jesus said to do, which is be peacemakers. And that's what he's trying to tell the church. Basically, that even if you see the government as the enemy, which many in the church, the early church would have, that the, the, the proper response is not violence and vengeance, but rather the love of one's enemies. Now, this brings us to a third question that always gets asked. Is it ever appropriate or when should we disobey governing authority, right? When should we disobey governing authority? Because if you read the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament, there were times and seasons where God's people disobeyed the governing authority that was, that was over them. And so when do we do that? When is it okay? When is it right? When is it appropriate to go, no, I'm not going to follow what the government tells me to do here, okay? So to, to, to that answer that, I'll give you two things, two reasons um, where, where we should disobey. Number one is that we disobey government when they tell us to do something, that God in his word has told us that we should not do, okay? We disobey government when they say do something that God's very clear in his word, Christians should not do. I'll give you an Old Testament example and a New Testament example. Um, they're actually both, they were both kind of the same, the same example, but 
Back in Exodus, um, you might remember God's people, the Hebrew people, they were in Egypt. And the Pharaoh of Egypt started noticing that, man, um, if we're not careful, population check here, what's going to happen is the, the Hebrew people are going to eventually outnumber the Egyptian people. And he was worried about them, you know, revolting. And so he made this law where he said, look, if the Hebrew people have a female child, they can keep the child. But if they have a male child, they've got to turn that child over to the state and we're going to kill it. Okay. Well, God's people obviously have a problem with that, right? God said, thou shalt not murder. That would be murder. And so they, they rebel against that authority. That's, uh, in fact, the whole reason we have the story of Moses. Moses was one of those babies that the law said should have been killed. But God's people said, no, we're not going to do that. And so Moses lives. And we have the story of Moses who leads his people out of bondage years later. Because God's people said, we're not going to do something that God's word clearly says we should not do. In the New Testament, you have the same example when Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph, you know, you might remember the story, the wise men come and um, they tell Herod the king that there's this new king of the Jews that's been born. Well, Herod had quite the ego. He didn't want there to be another king of anybody other than him. So he, you know, issues the decree that all the male children need to be killed. Again, Mary and Joseph, they disobey. They actually flee and go to Egypt at the time. So there are times to disobey when, when the governing authorities tell God's people to do something that God's word says you should not do, that's when we disobey government, right? The other time that we should disobey government is when the government says that we cannot do something that God's word says we should do, okay? When they say you cannot do something, they, they pass some kind of law where Again, God's word is very clear that we should do that. So I'll give you another Old Testament and New Testament example. There's a man named Daniel in the Old Testament. You might remember Daniel's story. Some of you have heard the story, Daniel and the lion's den. Well, the reason Daniel got in trouble is because he continued to do something that the, the, the government told him he cannot do anymore. The government said, you cannot pray to Yahweh. No more praying to God. No, no more praying to Yahweh. You need to, you know, you need to bow down and, and, and worship the king. Daniel refused to do that. In fact, Daniel said, I pray three times a day. Daniel practiced the rule of life, you might say, right? He, he opened up his app and he was like, morning prayer, here we go, right? Like Daniel, Daniel prayed three times a day and he got in trouble because the state, the government said, you can't do that. And Daniel said, no, I'm a believer in Yahweh. I'm a believer in God. I'm going to pray three times a day, okay? He disobeyed. Um, another great example is in Acts chapters four and five. When the apostles, they are talking about Jesus and they're spreading the gospel and the government issued a, a law, but they basically said, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. And it says that basically they kept talking about Jesus. So they were arrested and they were beaten. The, the, they, the authorities kind of roughed them up a little bit, right? And it says then that, that they left after they were kind of beaten up, they, they let them go. And it says that the, the apostles like left praising God because they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ, Right? The authority said, no more Jesus talk. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop leading other people to talk about Jesus. No more worship of Jesus. And the apostles said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Okay? So that's when, that's when we disobey governing authorities. When they say to do something God's word says you should not do, or when they say you cannot do something that God's word says you should, we, we disobey. And then the last question is this. Like, if there are times and seasons where we disobey... How, how does that look? Like, how do we disobey rightly? 
What does that, what does that look like? How should, we dis, how should our disobedience look is really the question. And here's the short answer to the question, right? It's a, it's a civil disobedience. It's a civil kind of disobedience. Here's the thing. You can be like a good citizen or a good resident of a place without agreeing with all of your leaders, without agreeing with all the laws and the rules that are in place, without agreeing with the government. Like somehow we got this idea that like, if I didn't vote for the guy or I don't like this rule or law that, you know, it's not, I've seen shirts no matter who's elected, not my president or whatever. It's like, we think that if, if we don't agree with it, that, that we just can't, you know, I'm not, we can't be good citizens. But again, over and over and over in the Bible, you see, you see faithful believers who were good citizens of a particular place, even though they disagreed with a lot of the things that place stood for. This summer, we looked at the life of a guy named Joseph. Joseph essentially rose to become vice president of Egypt. He was vice president, like second in command of the whole land. And I would remind you that Egypt was an administration, if you will, that was a pagan, idolatrous country. Joseph didn't agree with everything about Egypt. He didn't agree with all the rules, the laws. He didn't agree with Pharaoh. And yet he served faithfully as a government official. And God used him to bring about some really great and positive change. A little bit later, you got a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah worked in the Persian government. Again, a pagan, idolatrous place. Nehemiah didn't agree with all the Persian rules, all the customs. He didn't agree with, with everybody in leadership, but God used him. God, God found favor with Nehemiah and granted him favor with the Persian king to accomplish something God wanted him to do. Again, I've already talked about Daniel, but Daniel served faithfully in Babylon under numerous kings for decades. He, was a, he, he worked his way up and was a, a chief political figure in a, in a regime that was just brutal. And, and I'm sure he didn't agree with everything about the Babylonian empire or the Assyrian empire, right? But he served faithfully. He served faithfully. And so you don't have to agree as those in the early church, they didn't agree with Rome. Rome could be a brutal, brutal regime. And yet Paul says, you work to live peaceably and obey the laws and respect, and, and respect the rulers. And so when we disobey our government, what we do is we, we disobey in a, in a civil way. We disobey in a civil way. And so what that means is we don't, you know, we don't riot and loot and storm and we don't do those things. Instead, we try to bring about change in a civil way. And there's a lot of examples of that. You know, Jesus practiced a civil disobedience. Jesus refused to call Caesar Lord of all, which would have been a crime in his day. The apostles practiced a civil disobedience. What about the guy that wrote this book, right? The apostle Paul. Did, did the apostle Paul practice a civil disobedience? That guy was arrested a lot, right? If you read through the New Testament, like Paul probably had his own orange jumpsuit with his name on it. Like, here you go. It's already fitted for Paul. Here he goes again. Like he's just getting arrested. There was a riot in like every town he went to, right? He didn't do it, but other people, like there was just, there was a civil disobedience with Paul because he had a bigger mission and a bigger purpose in mind. In our own, in our own uh, nation, you could go through numerous people that practiced a civil kind of disobedience that brought about a really healthy and needed change. Martin Luther King practiced a civil disobedience. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for practicing civil disobedience that brought about a healthy and needed change in our country. Rosa Parks is a great example. She practiced a civil disobedience that led to some needed change. 
And again, on and on and on we could go. The bottom line is Paul's saying, look, there are some rare occasions where we need to disobey. But the way we disobey reflects Christ. And we are to be people, Christians are to be people that practice the way of Christ. We're not resorting to violence and, 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 and vengeance. We leave that to God. But we practice a civil disobedience when necessary. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, but I wanted to just quickly mention, so I mentioned that this text can be controversial. Now, I don't know if anything I've said up to this point has even been controversial. I feel like that's a pretty straightforward reading of, first, uh, of, of Romans 13, 1 to 7. Um, but here's where it gets a little bit tricky and, and the reason that Christians debate some of this. It's really verse 4. Verse 4 is, is a verse that people can take some, some different ways. Um, Paul mentions this term, bear the sword. And so let me just read it for you and then we'll briefly talk about it before we go. It says in verse four, for he, that is the state, the governing authorities, um, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not, there it is, there's the term, bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, okay? And so Christians have debated what this bear the sword looks like and what the extent to which the state can bear the sword um, sword is obviously uh, an instrument of punishment, an instrument of death, an instrument of violence. Um, there's really no way around that. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin against God, uh, angel in the very beginning comes, they, they, guard, uh, they guard the garden with a sword. In the end, in Revelation 19, Jesus comes back. He's bearing a sword for judgment. Um, all through scripture, the sword, of course, is an instrument used in war and in battle, bringing punishment and bringing death. It's a violent weapon. It is what it is. And so the question then that, that gets raised here with verse four is, uh, again, at what, to what extent does the state or governing authorities uh, have the right to bear the sword? And so you get into issues of, you know, proper use of deadly force when protecting life. You get into issues of capital punishment is it ever okay? Is it right or is it okay? Uh, just war theory, you know, in the protection of others, is, it, is, is war ever uh, okay? Is it ever an option? And again, I'm not here this morning to kind of tell you what you should believe on each of those things because I am quite certain that in this room, we are not all on the same page on those things. Even in staff meeting this week around our room, as we talked about it, we're not all on the same page on those things, right? And so uh, if, we can, if we can just kind of agree that, man, we're not... We're not gonna be on the same page in regard to that stuff. Here's what I'll say, the only thing I'll say in regard to those things and the reason it's such a, a difficult subject. There is no doubt reading the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is for human life. God is for human life. God is for the flourishing of human life. And we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world where evil and wickedness and injustice are a part of our world and those things are not just going to fix themselves. Those things are not just gonna go away on their own until Jesus comes back one day. And so we need governments and we need laws and we need rules and we need order to be brought out of the chaos because if those things are not in place, then evil and wickedness and injustice are just going to run rampant, right? They're just gonna run rampant. And so what I'll say in closing is this. The question that we really, and that Paul's, Paul's trying to sort of ask here is, you know, how do we live as, ultimately we're citizens of, of God's kingdom, right? The Bible says that, 
that our citizenship is not in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom first and foremost. But how do we live as good residents of a particular place where God has called us to live? It doesn't mean that we agree with every single thing our leaders believe. It doesn't mean we agree with all the laws and all the rules that are in place. But at the end of the day, we follow those laws and rules and we, to the best of our ability, we respect the authority that is placed there because in so doing, we are being good citizens of God's kingdom. We are showing the world the way of Christ, not by violence and vengeance, but by loving our neighbors and loving our enemies and being peacemakers. That's what Paul's trying to get across to the early church. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we're so grateful today for your word that, um, God, sometimes there's just some really difficult text of scripture. Sometimes it's really hard to kind of wrestle with some of these things. And, and God, I know that in here, in this room, um, that, God, we have some different political ideologies. God, everyone in this room did not vote the same way. And God, I happen to think that that's actually a beautiful thing for a church. So I pray that you would forgive us for times when our political ideology or our, our political affiliation has caused us to be unloving towards our neighbor or even our enemy. God, when we have let maybe a political extremism kind of creep into our hearts and it just sort of rules and reigns where in reality, you should be ruling and reigning. I'm thankful, God, that as a church, we can come together and we can sing songs like all hail King Jesus because at the end of the day, you rule and you reign supreme. And so I pray that you would remind us of that truth today. God, that you would help us when we disagree and when every fiber of our being wants to sort of push back and rebel, that you would remind us that in order to be good citizens of your kingdom, we need to be good residents of the place you've called us to live. So help us to love our neighbors, help us to love our enemies, help us to be peacemakers because that is the way of Christ. And we confess that we need your strength in order to do that. And so we ask for it today in Jesus' name. Amen.